had everything up. And I just had a, what for me was a regular shirt. But there was this big old tall drink of water. He was a, he was a true blue cowboy. I mean, this guy had on the, the, the flannel shirt. He had on the blue jeans. He had on the boots. He had on that hubcap size belt buckle, you know. And he kind of looked at me like this. And I said, hey, how you doing? He said, okay. And just kind of turned around and walked off. And I thought, well, that guy's not very friendly. Well, the next night I come to church, and he is sitting right here on the third row, right where you're at. And he's sitting there all by himself with his arms kind of strung out over the back like this, wearing another plaid shirt and another cowboy outfit, just like the one he'd had on the night before. And I promise you, just as I was starting the seminar, he started to unbutton his shirt. Now that's not something you see in church very often. I didn't know what was happening. He unbuttoned his shirt, pulled it open, and had on the loudest Hawaiian shirt that I've ever seen in my life and started laughing. And so I knew I had a friend there. So, so anyways, I'm glad to see everybody back tonight. I don't know if you heard about the old guy. He was, he was, he was not much of a husband. He was kind of wishy-washy, kind of limp-wristed, kind of willy-nilly. And his poor old wife, she just could not take this any longer. Finally, one day she looked at him and she said, listen, I've had it with this marriage. He said, well, honey dear, what in the world is wrong? She said, that's what's wrong. You're not much of a man. You're just kind of wishy-washy, kind of willy-nilly. She said, she says, I've had it with this. He said, well, honey, what do you think we ought to do about this? She said, I'll tell you what we need to do about it. We need to get some counseling. We need to get some help. He said, well, honey, you just schedule something. I'll come right along. She said, okay, I'll do it. So she scheduled an appointment. And about a week later, they go to see this counselor. And they're sitting there talking to the counselor. And it doesn't take the counselor very long to see what the problem is. And he gets a little bit disgusted. He stands up from behind his chair, walks around to the front of the desk. And he grabs the woman by her shoulders. Right shoulder, left shoulder. Stands her up in front of him. Throws his arms around this gal. Gives her the biggest kiss she's ever had in her life. Sits her back down. Walks back around. Looks at the husband and says, now listen, sport, that's what your wife needs at least twice every week. Guy looked at him and said, well, I reckon I could get her in here on Tuesdays and Thursdays. (laughs) (laughs) The moral of that story is simply this. Folks, there are some things in this world, if you're going to do them, you have to do them yourself. And guys, right at the top of that list is kissing your own wife. You're in charge of that job. But for all of us, dealing with our money should be near the top of our list. And if you're expecting somebody else to take care of your money, if you're looking for someone else who cares as much about it as you do, you're probably going to be disappointed. You're either not going to find anybody, or if you do, the odds are very high that they will not be very concerned about your well-being. So this is the evening when we're going to talk a little bit about how to do this thing the right way. We're going to talk about the A, the B, and the C of getting this thing right with our money. Um, I need a little bit of help. I had a bottle of water that I was walking around with out there somewhere, and I failed to bring it inside. I hate to ask somebody to do this, but could could somebody get me like a cup with some water in it or something? Uh, I have to go through a lot of water in one of these seminars or I lose my voice. So, uh, uh, where? Oh, like I said, never mind. (laughs) They didn't bring me in because I was smart. Okay, there's my water. Thank you. I'm glad somebody saw it. I thought I'd brought it up here, but I was looking around and looking around and didn't see it. Um, okay, that got me off. So, let's start with the A. Learning to acknowledge who it is that owns everything. Mr. Uh, Mr. Jackson was a 56-year-old businessman. He loved God. He'd been a Christian about all of his life. And probably more than anything else that Mr. Jackson loved, he loved mission work. He loved mission work. He loved missionaries. He loved all of that. 
And since Mr. Jackson was a fairly wealthy man, he personally supported several missionaries, including one young man who lived and worked in Tanzania, Africa. This was that very special time that only came around every couple of years. The young missionary was back in the States for a week or two of vacation, and today was the very special day that he was coming to be, uh, to come, coming to visit Mr. Jackson at his office. The young missionary was impressed. You know, he pulled his car up to Mr. Jackson's business and he saw the acres of manufacturing facilities. He pulled his car up to the corporate headquarters building, parked it. He got on the elevator, went up to the 10th floor where Mr. Jackson's suite of offices was. The elevator had no more than opened its doors when Mr. Jackson's secretary looked down the hallway and she could see the young man. She was excited. She got up from her desk, walked into Mr. Jackson's office. She said, Mr. Jackson, he's here. And with that, Mr. Jackson is up from behind the big mahogany desk, walking to the door of his office. He gets there just as the young missionary arrives. And it, and it really is a father and son moment. The two men just embrace. And it's just like Paul and Timothy. It was, it was obvious that they loved each other. And finally, Mr. Jackson said, come over here, sit down. He said, I want to hear about everything that's been going on in Tanzania for the last three or four years. So for the next four or five hours, the two men just sat and talked. The young missionary told Mr. Jackson about people who were coming to Christ, people who were being baptized. He told him about his dream of starting a medical outreach in Tanzania so they could address people's physical needs as well as their spiritual needs. Well, anyways, the day had drawn on and it was time for the two men to say goodbye. And by this point, they have both walked back over to the door of Mr. Jackson's office. And they're saying their very last goodbye when Mr. Jackson turns and begins to walk back to his desk. Now, the young missionary knew what he was doing because every time he'd ever come before, Mr. Jackson had done this. He would walk to his desk and pull the drawer open, reach inside, and pull out his big three-to-a-page black personal checkbook. And he would usually open it up and write the young missionary a check for an additional two or $3,000 just to help him with his personal expenses. Well, sure enough, on this day, he did the same thing. He reached in the drawer, pulled out the checkbook, opened it up, commenced to write a check, ripped it out, walked over here and handed it to the young missionary. The young missionary took the check and glanced at it. He looked at it again. He said, I don't get this. He said, this is a check for $50,000. Mr. Jackson said, listen, that's no big deal. We're having a good year. It's not going to hurt me. And besides, he said, we, you know, you, this, this medical outreach that you want to get going, it's going to take some serious money. And I want to be participatory. I want to help you with that. So again, the two men were saying their very last goodbye when the telephone on Mr. Jackson's credenza rang. He picked the phone up and what had been a very upbeat, positive look on his face just began to dissolve. He said, are you sure it's that bad? He said, call every member of the board. I want them in town by tomorrow morning and get the management team up here in 20 minutes. Hung the phone up. Mr. The young missionary looked at him. He said, well, what, what in the world just happened? Mr. Jackson said, I don't know fully, but apparently the ship that's coming up from South America that's bringing in all of next year's raw rubber supply, he said, apparently that ship is somewhere in the Gulf of Mexico and it's taking on water. He said, if that ship were to go down, he said, that'll be it for us. We'll be out of business a year from now. That's our, enti our entire production run. That's all the raw rubber supply for the entire year next year. He said, we'll be out of business this time next year. He said, I need to ask you, could I please have that check back? 
Missionary said, well, sure, and reached in his pocket and handed it to him. Mr. Jackson took the check, ripped it in half, and threw it away. But, but at least to his credit, he walks back to his desk and jots out another check and hands it to the missionary. Folks, this time when the missionary looked at the check, his knees almost buckled. He said, I don't get this. He said, a minute ago, you gave me $50,000. But then you got this horrendous news. But he said, he said, now you've written me a check for $100,000. He said, I don't understand. Folks, that was the day the young missionary learned the lesson of his life. Mr. Jackson said, listen. He said, a minute ago, I was flying pretty high here. But he said, what's going on right now? This thing is just between God and me. And I need for God to know where my heart is. Now, brothers, sisters, I can't say this any more plainly. But I would submit to you that it is virtually impossible for a Christian to get his heart right with his God without also getting his money right with his God. So what I'd like to do is this. I'd like to share with you three of the foundational principles that God's kids have always understood about godly giving. And these are three things that I think make sense occasionally for us to go back and review because they're, they're profound. The first thing is simply this. God expects us to give to him from our first fruits. Proverbs tells God's people, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all of your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty, your vats will overflow with new wine. Now this concept of first fruit giving is talked about in both the Old and the New Testament. There's more than 20 references in the Bible about first fruit giving. And folks, this is not deep, hard to understand theology. This doesn't take somebody of David's stature to teach this. This is basic understanding that God's kids have always had. Old Testament, New Testament. It's the understanding that essentially says this. God gets the first God gets the best. That's why it was wrong for Jews to come to the temple with animals, lambs and goats that were lame or blind for sacrificial purposes. God expected unblemished animals. And I would tell you this, brothers and sisters, it's exactly the same thing today for us. It's wrong to come to church on Sunday morning and wait until the collection basket's going by, open our billfolds up to see what we've got left over to decide what God gets. It's wrong to do that because we need to be giving to God from the first and the best. And some people say, oh, that's old mosaical teaching. No, it isn't. This, this actually pre predates Moses. This goes back to the days of Melchizedek and Abraham. God gets the first. God gets the best. Now, again, it's easy for me to teach this. It's not always been so easy to live it. One of the things that Bonnie and I did probably... 25 years ago now, maybe 30 years ago, we noticed that we were not giving as well as we should. I mean, we were, well, we were giving, but there were lots of times that things would happen, like maybe some missionary would come along, or some outreach program, or some kid that needed to go to college. And Bonnie and I would get all excited about it, and we'd talk about it, but then we would sort of forget, or we'd lose our passion, or we would spend the money on something else. Something that really helped us. We went, and this might be of some benefit to some of y'all. We went down to First Tennessee Bank in Green Hills, and we opened up a savings account. And we call it our first fruits account. And we have that account to this very day. And the plan was real simple. Whenever we had extra money in our checking account, we would just take it out and put it over here into the first fruits account. Then that way, whenever a cause or a need came along, we were, like the Bible says, we were ready unto every good work. Maybe it was a kid that wanted to go to college or a missionary. Maybe it was just a mama who needed a bag of groceries. 
But we were able to help. And I'm telling you, this was a cool experience for us. And it's something, like I said, that to this day, we do. And, and, and I probably need to say something else before I leave this, because I don't want to leave the wrong impression here. I am not suggesting that God's plan of giving is that what we do is we take the leftover money in our checking account and put it in a savings account and wait for God to kind of pack, pet me, peck me on the shoulder and say, hey, Steve, wake up. It's time for you to give. I'm not saying that. This is money that in our first fruits account that was over and above our regular giving. I really do believe that the ideal model of Christian giving is essentially what we already do. That is on a regular basis. We usually do this on Sundays. On a regular, sustained, dependable basis, we need to be regular, dependable, ongoing, sacrificial givers wherever our church home is. If you're a member here Mount Juliet, this is your church home. That means you give here. That means when you go on vacation, you don't forget this church. This, this morning, it was, it was kind of funny. This happens to me almost every Sunday morning. I'm usually sitting in some church where, where I'm not a member. And the collection basket goes by, and I don't usually put anything in. Because Bonnie, she wasn't there today, but normally Bonnie's at the Antioch church putting our money in at Antioch. That's our home church. And it's the funniest thing because I can every now and then see folks kind of watching to see what I'm going to put in on Sunday morning. They, they think, well, what's that money guy going to do? And I don't usually, sometimes I'll put a dollar in, you know, to be seen of men. That's a joke. I don't really do that. I'm playing with you. <laughs> but no, our giving is at Antioch because that's where our going is. Wherever your going is, that's where your giving should be. And that means that we need to be consistent about this. And sometimes people say to me, they say, Steve, I don't know about that. I don't know if I agree with what those elders are doing with my money. Well, let's, let's talk about that just for a minute here. You know, about 99 point something, something, something percent of the time when we get into these stupid arguments about how the money's being spent, it has nothing to do with scriptural issues. It boils down to issues of preference and expedience and too oftentimes issues of pride. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, please listen to this. I'm telling you, when our elders pick up and say, we need to move this way, we should pick up emotionally, physically, financially, and move this way too. When a man, and nobody has asked me to say this, just listen to me please for a minute, this is just coming from my heart. When a man loves God enough to belly up to the bar and say, okay, okay, I'll help to run that church, I'll help to lead our people, then we as God's kids owe it to those men to love them, to respect them, and to follow their lead. We should not be the ones who are digging our heels in the sand and trying to slow things down. Obviously, if your elders are committing sin with the money, don't give it. For that matter, don't even go to a church like that. But again, 99 plus percent of the time, it has nothing to do with right and wrong. It's a matter of preference. And we need to be consistent, dependable givers wherever our going is. Now, I got to look at this wall back. Christians are not very good givers nationwide. As a matter of fact, nationwide... Less than 10% of Christians, 9% to be exact, are, <clears throat> are tithing Christians. That means that less than 10% of Christians are giving 10% or more of their income to God. Now, I know, what's, <laughs> I know what some of you are probably already thinking. You're thinking, is that guy up there in that tacky shirt about ready to tell me how much to give? And if so, where does he find that one in the Bible? 
And the answer is no. I'm not going to try to tell anybody what to give. It's none of my business. Now, maybe your elders can tell you, but no, it's not my responsibility to do that. And no, I cannot go to some spot in the New Testament and point at it and say, that's where it says that Christians should be tithing. I'll admit that. But I got to thinking about this tithing thing a long time ago. And I got to thinking, you know, back in the Old Testament times, God expected his people to be tithing Christians, to be giving 10%. And really, when you study it, you see that when you factor in the other things they were doing, like the temple taxes and everything else, Orthodox Jews were probably giving closer to 30 or 35% of their income to God. Now, that would be meddling, so I won't go that far. But they were giving at least 10% to God in the Old Testament. Yet they were living under the law of Moses. Today, brothers and sisters, we are, like we talked about this morning, we're living yippy-skippy. We're living under the gift of grace in Jesus. Why would I want to do less than what those people were doing? And something else. The people in the Old Testament times, I'm sure some of those folks were doing just fine. But I suspect that a high percentage of those people were living in levels of poverty that we don't even comprehend. And I don't mean to offend anybody in here, but I'm just going to tell you that unless you have done some serious third world traveling, I'll bet you have never seen true poverty. We have dumbed the word poverty in this country down to the point that you can have two TVs, and a, or two cars, I should say, and a plasma TV and still be below the poverty level. That's not poverty. These people, I suspect many of them were working six-day weeks, 15 hours a day to buy food to eat at night that night. Yet here we are with so much. And listen, I meant to mention something this morning that I left out. I meant to tell everybody this morning that I'm rich. I, I didn't mention that, did I? I don't think I did. Well, I am. I, I'm rich. I've got a bathtub where I live. That puts me in the top 30% of the world. I know where I'm going to sleep tonight, what I'm going to wear tomorrow, what I'm going to be eating next week. That puts me in the top 25% of the world. And here's the thing that's going to really impress you. Let me show you something. You're not going to believe this. This is my computer. That puts me in the top 5% of the world. I'm rich. Anybody else in here rich? You get my drift. Here we are with so much. There they were with so little, yet they were tithing. Why would I want to do less? Wonder what would happen if Christians everywhere got serious about this. What if Christians everywhere fell in love with God, say 10% of the way? What would happen? Well, here's what would happen. According to the statisticians, there would be an additional $220 billion given in churches this year. That means the average size church, and you folks are about eight times the average. The average size church in America would have an additional half a million dollars this year. What do you think you could do here at Mount Juliet with another three or four million dollars this year? You think we could reach a few more people for Jesus? Maybe relieve some suffering? Maybe really focus people on the cross in a way that we've never done before? Listen, we could rock this world as Christians if we would just simply fall in love with God. 10% of the way. A second great principle of godly giving is to understand that giving should be a joyful experience. Paul talked about that a lot. Paul said this. He said, let each one of us do just as he's purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. And why is that, Paul? It's because God loves a cheerful giver. Anybody in here know what a better word, better translation of that word cheerful is? Help me out. Yeah, hilarious. Listen, listen to me. Folks, sometimes we get so religious that we, we lose our effectiveness. <laughs> you, is such a thing as being so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. 
Paul did not talk with a bunch of these and thous. Paul used Koine Greek. It was a basic street language that he used. Paul was not involved in using all the highfalutin religious language. Paul was literally saying here, listen Christians, you need to get happy about giving. You need to click your heels together and say, thank you Jesus, I get to give. But again, that's not the way a lot of us play things out. And I can tell you truthfully, I have had my struggles with this. Back in 1977, um, God taught Bonnie and me, well, I say Bonnie and me. Bonnie never had any teaching she needed on this. It was me. Back in 1977, God dealt with me on this in a pretty forceful way. Um, Bonnie and I had just started the business. And for those of you in here who have started businesses, you know what it's like. It's tough to start a business. Bonnie was averaging about 70, 75 hour weeks. I was averaging about 100 hours a week. I think we went for about seven years without a true vacation. It is tough to start a business. But I recall we had started the company and we, I don't know, we had two or three employees maybe. We did not have any extra money. I remember we had about $3,000, maybe $3,200 in the company checking account. That was there in the event the bottom fell out. That was all we, I mean, we didn't have anything. We had nothing. Anyways, got a phone call from Bill Turner. Bill had been my roommate at college at Lipscomb. He and his wife, Jamie, were living up in Illinois with another couple, Victor and Ruby. Victor Ellison is now uh, one of the deans down at Sunset School of Preaching. But uh, in those days, Bill and Victor and their wives were living up there together. Bill called me and he said, Steve, Victor and I are going to be coming to Nashville for a couple of weeks. We have started a church up here in Illinois. We need to buy a bus. We need to raise $3,000. I said, great. Why don't you guys come and just stay with Bonnie and me? So they did. They came and moved in with us. And for about two weeks there, every night, Bonnie and I would get home, I don't know, 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And we'd come in there and say, hey guys, how did it go today? And I'm telling you, it was the same old thing every night. Well, we went and talked to the elders over here at this church. They didn't have any money. Went and talked to the elders over here at this church. They didn't like buses. Went and talked to the elders over here at this church. They didn't like us. You know, it was one thing or another every night. But the bottom line was like zero. They were getting nothing. And I don't know, it was probably about the middle of that second week when some real bad stuff started to occur to me. I started to think, hey, these guys are about to leave town. They don't have any money. I've got $3,000, and I'm married to the only woman on the planet who's never had a dollar that she didn't want to just give away to somebody. So being the highly spiritual young man that I was, I started to pray harder. I started to ask God to help those selfish elders come up with some money. Because <laughs> I didn't want to have to, no, I didn't. But, but I, you know, I, I, was, I didn't know what to do about this thing. Anyways, the last day came, and they had raised exactly zero. Have you ever been like this before? Have you ever been in one of these religious pickles? That's what I call it, a religious pickle, where you know what you should do, you don't want to do it, and you're kind of mad at the whole situation. Have you ever felt like, am I the only one in here that's ever felt like that? I kind of feel like a spiritual pygmy. You know what you should do, but you just don't want to. I mean, I knew what I should do, but I didn't want to give them that money. And I wrestle with this and struggle with it. And finally, I remember I went and got the checkbook. And boy, I was in a foul mood. I went and got the checkbook and wrote him a check for $3,000. And brother, I'm telling you, that thing liked to stuck to my hand. Here, Bill, take that check. And Bill went driving out of town with what I was thinking of as my money. Now, I'll tell you more about that story in a minute. But this business of me being a very, you know, joyful giver has not been an easy thing in my life. The third great principle of godly giving is that we should give the way we've been given. You know the really cool thing about God? God has never one time asked anybody to give anything that he didn't first give them in abundance. 
That's the neat thing about our God. Paul said, let each one put aside and save. How? As he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. Listen, some of you in this room have got the gift of giving. You know, over in Romans chapter 12, Paul lists seven different gifts that different Christians have. One of those is the gift of liberality, the ability to give. And by the way, let me tell you something. It doesn't mean that you're rich. And it doesn't mean that you've ever used your gift either. (laughs) But some of you in this room have that gift. And if you do, then you need to get busy. You need to start giving more. If you don't have that gift, fine. Give what you can afford to give financially. Then look for the other gifts that God has blessed you with and share those. Where's Andrew at? Andrew, where are you at, brother? I'm looking for him. Right. I, I have so much enjoyed listening to the singing this morning and this evening that Andrew has let us in. Andrew's a great singer. Some of you all in here, I heard you. You're good singers. <laughs> Stan Birdwell knows this. I can't sing. I am a terrible singer. My voice has been known to kill small animals. I am a terrible singer. But, but you know, if you're a good singer, then God bless you. Sing in the shower, buy a guitar, start a band. I don't care what you do, but bring your voice to the fellowship and bless the other Christians with it. This is that koinonia, that sharing that we were talking about this morning that's so important. Whatever God has gifted you with, share it. That's part of it. You know, even in the Old Testament times, God made provisions for his people. The rich Jews, they came to the temple with lambs and with goats. God let the poor ones come with doves and with pigeons. God has always made provision and he's never asked for anything. That, that he didn't first give us. You know, I think when we get our giving right, we're going to see at least four really neat things happen. I think there are four blessings that come from godly giving. First blessing that comes from godly giving is that giving just simply frees us from the tyranny of money. You know, there, there are Christians, and I run into this situation all around the country, there are Christians everywhere that are struggling financially. And a lot of times people come up to me and they'll say, Steve, I've got this problem or that problem. And I love to visit and counsel with people. But every once in a while, I, I don't know what, how to explain it, but I just get a sense that, that, that I need to really cut through the fat with somebody and get right down to the bone. And I'll, I'll occasionally do this, and, and probably shouldn't do it, but occasionally when somebody comes up to me and they're telling me about all their financial problems and all this and all that, I'll just stop the conversation. I'll say, well, tell me something. How much are you giving to God? And you, boy, I tell you, you talk about something that stops the conversation, that'll do it. They'll look at you and they'll say, well, I just told you I can't give God anything because I'm in debt. You see, this is our problem. There are Christians everywhere who think that God gets the leftovers. And when we have that attitude, it's very little wonder that, that we're not having a lot of joy in life. When we start to let go of our money, if you love money, give it away. That's the best thing you can do with something you, you love. Give it away. You don't have it anymore. You get over the problem. Start giving it away. It changes everything. I think another blessing that comes from godly giving is that godly giving helps us stay involved in the lives of other people. Back when... Um, the children were real small. Bonnie and I got interested in mission work. I guess we probably started this before we even had kids. But we would send a little bit of money here, a little bit of money there. And there came a time when we started to realize, you know, we've sent a fair amount of money to some of these mission points. Maybe we need to get energized. Maybe I need to pick up and go and work with some of these missionaries. And you talk about kids, that we, I told you this morning that we homeschooled our kids. You talk about kids that really did get great field trips. We took our kids everywhere. I, I took them northern Africa and, and all over uh, uh, Russia and, and Poland and Germany and, and goodness, uh, Central America and Mexico. On a lot of trips, many of 
of which we probably would never have taken had we not first sent our money ahead. But somehow when you get your money involved, your feet get activated, I've noticed. I mean, it's so easy these days to get in your car at the end of the day of work. You know, you roll up our windows, we turn on the radio, we're driving home, ignoring people around as many times that need our help. But when we start to give, we get invested, we get involved. It changes things. I think a third blessing that comes from godly giving is giving just simply brings personal blessings and joy to us. You know, it's, it's, it's just that simple. You know, look, if you want to wait until you're dead and gone and let somebody else go through your closets and go through your bank accounts and give all your stuff away, you know, I guess that's your right. But it takes away all the fun. There's so much fun in giving. It changes things. You might have heard the story about the very unpopular little pig. Nobody liked this guy. So one day, the very unpopular little pig walked across the barnyard to where the very popular cow lived. And the very unpopular pig looked at the very popular cow and said, Cow, nobody likes us. And the cow said, Well, I've noticed that. The pig said, What? I don't know why. The cow said, Well, maybe it has to do with how you pigs give. Pig said, We pigs, we're great givers. Cow said, Well, tell me about how pigs give. The pig said, Well, they cut off our little rumps. They call those hands. They whack off our sides and call that bacon. And they take our feet and pickle those things. You see, we're great givers, we pigs we are. The cow said, Well, I can see that you give, but maybe there's a better way. Pig said, Well, how do cows give? The cow said, Well, we cows, we give our milk, we give our cream, we give our butter. And then the cow looked at the pig and said to the pig, Do you see the difference? The pig said, Nope. The cow said, The difference between how pigs give and the way we cows give is we cows do our giving while we're still alive. That's the key to joyful giving. Being around to see other folks enjoy it. It changes all kinds of things. Now, I do believe that there is a fourth blessing that comes from godly giving. But before I even put it up, let me just tell you, I don't know how to teach this one. I don't know how to teach it. I have never signed anybody's creed, and I'm not going to. Because what I believed five years ago about some stuff is not what I believe today. And if God lets me live another five or six years, I suspect that I'm going to change even more. So all I know how to do at any given point in time is teach the very best I can on a topic. But I would tell you that I do believe that there is a relationship between giving to God and receiving blessings back from God. Now, Steve, does that mean that you agree with those guys on the radio that say, send me $100 and God will give you 1000 No, I talked about that this morning. I call those guys the gospel greed merchants. They're trying to play God like he's a cosmic slot machine. And I think it's wrong. I think it's sinful. Paul talked about it. He warned against about the constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Then he warned that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Many people, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pain. But, with all of that said, brothers and sisters, the Bible brings a beautiful balance back to all this. Jesus talked about it. He compared it kind of to a bushel basket. He said, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, they will pour into your lap. For whatever measure you deal out to others, it will be dealt to you in return. Paul said, now this I say, he who sows sparingly shall reap sparingly, but he who sows bountifully shall reap bountifully. And folks, there's only one place that I'm aware of in all 66 books of the Bible. Bible, where God ever one time told his people to test him on anything. Now this happened about four or five hundred years before Jesus came on the scene. It was at a really bad time for the Israelis. The prophets were on the take, the priests were corrupt, and God was angry at his people for not giving. 
He speaks through the prophet Malachi. And, and listen, before I read this, I want you to notice something. God, God equates followers of his that don't give to people who are robbing him. And he is going to pronounce a curse on them. Listen, brothers and sisters, I am convinced that there are Christians all over the United States right this minute who are under God's judgment because we have willfully chosen to disobey and disrespect God. And the Bible tells us that, that God is going to rebuke and chasten every son that he loves. And if we're kicking sand in God's face, there comes a point when God has to deal with us. And there are Christians, and I'm not saying that just because you're sick or just because you've got this problem or that problem that it's because of sin. I don't believe that my heart problems were because of sin. Okay, I'm not saying that. But I do know, I've seen it happen. I see God bring people into judgment because they refuse to obey him. And there are Christians who are in financial bondage, who are in relational problems of all kinds because they have chosen not to obey God. It's, it's dangerous not to obey God. Here's God talking through Malachi. He says, will a man rob God? God considers us not giving to be robbery. But you say, how have we robbed thee? Yet, uh, let me read that correctly, I'm sorry. Well, a man robbed God, yet you're robbing me. But you then say, how have we robbed thee? And God answers. He says, you've robbed me in tithes and contributions. God considers this robbery. And then he goes on, he says, you are cursed with a curse because you're robbing me. The whole nation of you. That's frightening, brothers and sisters. But watch God's solution. God says, if you want to get right with me, here's what you do. You bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. He says, you get your giving right and test and see if I don't bless you in three ways. Number one, with general blessings, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until there's no more need. Number two, he tells this agriculturally based economy that the crops are going to come in. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it may not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes. And number three, he tells them that they're going to live at peace with the other nations. And all the nations will call you blessed. For you shall be a delightful land. That's what the Lord says about giving. Now, I told you I'd come back to this story about that $3,000 that I gave Bill Turner back in 1977. I still don't have this whole thing figured out. And I guess when I get to heaven, I've got, I'm going to have to ask God a few questions about this one. All I can do is tell you what happened. You can draw whatever conclusion you want. Here's what happened. After Bill and Victor left town with what I was still thinking of as my $3,000, I was scared. I was thinking, man, Steve, you're going to have to work just that much harder to try to replenish that money before something goes wrong. But here's what did happen. Bonnie and I noticed that clients began paying us more quickly than they ever had before. We noticed people coming to us, and for years this was happening, coming to us, asking us to represent them, whom we would never have expected would come to us. And I can tell you that over the next 23 years that I own that business, we never had a layoff. We never had a major cash flow problem. And I, I think I'm telling you correctly, when I say factoring in payroll, I don't believe we ever had a money-losing quarter. Now, I don't have this whole thing figured out. But I've got a feeling that back in 1977, God looked down into the heart of a 20-something-year-old kid that had a lot of spiritual growing up to do. And said, you know, that old boy didn't have a very good attitude with that check-writing thing, but at least he signed the check. Now watch what I'm going to do. And it was like I had just cracked the door to God, and he filled it with his light. 
Did God owe this to us? Positively not. But brothers and sisters, this is the God we serve. He is so good. He is so deep. He is so awesome. He is so capable. He is so mighty. He is so aware of what we need. He knows how much to give us, how much to hold back to protect us from ourselves. This is the God we serve. You know, we talk about how we trust God forever. The question is, what about here and now? The beautiful by and by is all fine and good eternity. But what about the nasty now and now? How are we trusting God with the things that he's given us? Listen, it's not going to be until we're on the other side of the line, I don't think, until we're going to know all the times that God has picked us up in his arms and carried us through messes that we couldn't even imagine. The times that he's protected these kids from things that could have killed them and that would have ruined our lives in the process. The times he's kept that drunk six feet across the line that was passing us at 60 miles an hour. Folks, this is the God we serve. We say that we trust him with forever. The question is, what are we doing with him right now with the stuff that he's given us? Now, we've talked a little bit about the A of learning to acknowledge who owns everything. Let's talk a little bit about the B word, budgeting. Nobody likes to discuss budgets. Bad word. Number one reason, by the way, why small businesses in America crash and burn is because of poor record keeping. Now, they tell us in the news that the reason families go down financially mainly is because of medical bills. Now, let me take that off and just say something about this first. That may be technically true, but if you study the data, you see that most families who bankrupt for medical purposes are bankrupting on amounts of less than $12,000. Now, $12,000 is a lot of money, but when you're doing your money thing right, $12,000 should never be enough to force a family into bankruptcy. The reason families bankrupt is the same reason the businesses do. It's because they haven't planned adequately to stay out of trouble. You know, know, nobody would ever think about building a building like this beautiful one here or building one of our homes without a blueprint. But all over America, every single month, there are millions of us who get our paychecks. We put them in the bank, we start writing checks, we start paying bills, but we do not have a written spending plan. And then we run out of money before we run out of month, and we're in that same downward spiral of living off of credit cards and, and stalling the collectors. That's what's going on in so many of our lives. And that's why so many of us are under bondage. And that's what's killing so many of us. Let me give you three reasons why people do not like to budget. These are things that I hear over and over again. Some people come up and they say, Steve, I just don't know where to start. Well, fair enough. In about five minutes, everybody in this room, we're all going to know where to start. I'm going to share with you exactly how to do a budget. But remember this. It's not really a matter of knowledge as much as it is a matter of heart. You've got to have a little information, but mainly we've got to have a lot of motivation. Getting this little 15-inch trip and kind of yanked together, getting our head and our hearts together, that's the trick. But if you want to do a budget, that's what we have to do. We have to have the information. We have to have the motivation. Now, listen, I will tell you this. If you're going to do a budget, you're going to have to purchase some things. And you might want to write these things down on the side of your book. Everybody in here that wants to do a budget, here's what you need to purchase. You need to go out and purchase a sheet of paper. (laughs) You need to purchase a pencil. And if you're a big spender, go down here to Walgreens and spend about $4 and buy a little hand calculator. They had them on sale the other day for a dollar a piece. You do not need Quicken. You don't need TurboTax. You don't even need a computer. I like those things. There's nothing wrong with them. But you don't need them. All you need is a little information, a little motivation. We'll talk about that in a minute. Second reason, though, people don't like the budget, and this one actually makes me a little angry. People come up to me every now and then. They'll say something like, Steve, you know, I'm just not a money geek. This money stuff confuses me. I don't know how to do a budget. You know, that to me is a little bit like someone coming up and saying, Hey, Steve, 
You know something? I'm not a French chef, and I do not know how to prepare Chateaubriand. So henceforth, I have decided from now on, I can no longer eat food. Huh? Look, you don't have to be a French chef to go home and make a peanut butter sandwich, right? You don't have to be a CPA to do a budget. All you need is a little information, a little motivation, but you've got to get those things going together. But the third reason people don't like to budget, and this is by far the biggest reason, people come up to me and they say, Steve, budgeting is just such a negative, depressing thing to do. It's such a downer. You know, we associate budgets with all kinds of bad things. We associate budgets, you know, with things that we don't like, things like diets, Things like root canals. Things like pain and austerity and scrimping. And tonight we all get through here and somebody comes running up to you and says, Hey, why don't we all go out to Applebee's together? And you're on a budget and you have to go, (laughs) I can't go. Because you see, we're on a budget. And that means we got to go home, we got to eat cheese and crackers. And if the cheese hasn't molded yet, I have to wait for that to happen because I'm on a budget. That's what we think these are. And it's little wonder that a lot of us don't want to have anything to do with a budget. But that's not what a budget is. A budget means some cool things are going to start to happen. It means that we're not going to be stalling creditors anymore. It means we're going to always have money for good causes here at church. It means... It means we're not going to regret the gifts we bought at Christmas when those January bills start to come through the door. Y'all know what the longest walk in the world is, don't you? It's the walk from the house at the end of January (laughs) down to the mailbox. Actually, that may not be the longest walk. The longest walk is probably the one going back to the house, looking at all these bills for stuff that you bought for people that you halfway know, who by now have either traded it in for the cash or given it to somebody else with their name on it. But you have the honor of paying for it for the next year. Having a budget stops that monkey business. It means, oh, I've had this one happen. It means the waiter is never going to come back to your table again in front of all of your friends at the restaurant and wave your credit card around and say, hey, this thing doesn't work. Have you got a good one? Having a budget stops that stuff. And here's one that would be a hoot for a bunch of us. No more fights with our spouse over money. It's going to change the paradigm of our lives if we'll do this thing right. You know, marketing people understand this. They understand that the name means a lot. We don't have used cars anymore. They're all pre-owned autos, right? And there are no more TV reruns. Have you noticed? These are all encore performances. And bless their hearts, our friends in the credit card industry tell us that they don't have late charges. Those are service fees. (laughs) I got to thinking, why don't we rename budgeting? Why don't we call budgeting what it really is? Instead of us calling this thing a budget, why don't we call this our personal financial freedom plan? Or you could call it your PFFP for short if you want to. I like this. It's personal. It's about our finances, and it will give us freedom if we will just plan. So let me share with you real quickly what the nine keys to developing a successful personal financial freedom plan really are all about. And I'll tell you what, before I do that, because if I don't do this right now while I'm thinking about it, I'm going to forget it. Let me just tell everybody real quickly about something that the elders are thinking about offering here at Mount Juliet. And and I want to be very clear. In a moment, I'm going to invite those of you that feel like you might be interested in this course to raise your hands because we'd like to kind of get a feel for the level of interest on this. This is the No Debt, No Sweat Money Boot Camp. This will probably, and these have not been decided upon yet, but if if the church does this, this will probably be offered in the fall, probably as a Wednesday night class. This is a 13-week study that's designed where I'll be with you each week on video. And you'll get a kit that has a lot of cool stuff. You'll have all of your CDs, your workbook in it. Uh, It has several things in it. It includes, um, this is your little 
daily spending journal. This is, I jokingly call this a 30-day calorie counter for money. This will give you a raise in 30 days because it'll show you where every penny's going. It's kind of a neat little thing. It also includes the new personal financial freedom plan, which is this budgeting form that we're talking about. This is an eight-page form that we've recently redeveloped. It's, in my judgment, the best budgeting form out there. But it forces us to go through and identify every dollar. Uh, The yellow sheets that you see in here are your scripture cards and so forth. Um, Let me just quickly tell you some of the topics of some of the lessons that I'll be with you on teaching each week. Um, If I can get to it. Uh, For instance, getting started and overcoming the three false beliefs that kill us. Learning to acknowledge who owns all the money. Developing a budget that works. That's the week that you're going to do what we're about to talk about here in just a few minutes. You're going to begin to build your family budget. Um, How to control your money so it doesn't control you. That'll be the week that you'll begin to build that wolf barrier that I mentioned this morning. I'm going to talk about that some more tonight. That's when, when you stack up the ten stones to keep the wolf away from the door. Paying off and getting out of debt in one to four years. Developing your emergency fund. Uh, uh, dealing with insurance issues and so forth. There's ten stones. Uh, the pain of debt. Let's get out of debt together. Stretching our dollars. This is the class where I'm going to teach you how to find great bargains and how to negotiate better deals. Uh, these shoes, well, these are not the ones, but I've got a pair of shoes like these. I went in the mall the other day. They were $110. That day they were on sale for $88. I paid $65 for them. When you learn how to negotiate, you can save a lot of money. There's a class in here on that. Uh, teaching our kids about money, life and God. The nitty gritty issues of life. This is the week when I'm going to teach you how to buy insurance and how to, and how to buy cars the right way. Um, how to buy a home and some hints on how not to buy a home. Uh, the basics of saving, investing and retiring. The secrets of the great investors. How mutual funds work and so forth. Anyways, this kit comes along with a resource book and all the materials. These kits normally are $80 but we have a special arrangement with seminar churches where you can get your own kit for a lot less. Let me be very clear. Every, I think I said this a minute ago. Every per, everybody's going to have to purchase that takes this course will have to purchase your own materials. But you, the kit, including all the materials in the book, will run you about $45 or $50. That's less than you would pay to take the family out to eat at Chili's, okay? The question is this. If the church were to offer this, we just want to get a feel for this. How many of you in here feel like you might be interested in something like this? Just put your hands up and hold them up. Keep them up because I want to get a count on this. Just keep them up for a couple minutes here. One, two... 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, 45, 46, 47, 48, 49, 51, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 61, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. About 65 or 70 people. Okay, that's kind of a quick guess, but that's pretty close. Thank you very much. Just wanted to kind of get a feel for that. Now, let's get back to what we were doing here. The first thing you're going to have to do... budget or a personal financial freedom plan that's going to work is understand the importance of teamwork. Now listen, if you're not married, you don't even need to listen for the next three minutes, okay? But if you are married, listen up. There, are, there is such a thing as good money in marriage, there's such a thing as bad money. The bad money in marriage is H&H money, okay? The good money is M&M money. 
Now, what are these things? H and H money is his and her money. Once you're married, there should no longer be his and her money. The only kind of money that you have in marriage is married money. M&M money. I'm telling you, when you become one person in marriage, according to God, you are one person. We should have all things in common. We should have all things together. And I know that this is not politically correct these days, but I'm telling you, husbands and wives need to have all things together. It, it, it's, it's critical to do this. And I hear all the excuses for why we don't do it, but, but you know, I don't understand why husbands and wives don't understand this. Why would some girl marry some hairy-legged old boy and say, well, he's going to be the head of my house and my husband, but I ain't going to trust him with my money? Or where do these dumb guys get the idea that they're going to marry some old girl and, 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 and she's going to be the mother of their children, but they're not going to trust her with his, he's not going to trust her with his money? I mean, where does this thinking come from? Folks, this is not born of orthodox Christian thought. This is born of worldliness, and it's not right. Now, listen, I want to be very careful here. There are exceptions to this. I was working with a woman a while back, and honestly, I can't remember whether her husband was drinking it or drugging it or gambling it or what he was doing with it. But I finally told her, I said, look, you have got to get a checking account and put your money, your payroll into that checking account so you and the kids will have rent and groceries. But folks, this wasn't God's first plan. This was triage. We were doing the very best we could to save what was left of a family. But from the beginning, God has meant for us to be one person. But listen, I will admit very rapidly that in most marriages, there are two very different types of people. Very different types, okay? In most marriages, there is one person whom I like to affectionately refer to as the money geek. Okay? This is the person who really does dig this money stuff. They love it. They don't mind to go over here and spend four or five or six or ten hours crunching the numbers. They really get into this stuff, okay? This is also the person in every marriage who has no life, okay? But there's one of these. (laughs) Also, though, in most marriages, there is another person, a very different kind of person, whom I call the big spender. And big spenders are the ones who make sure that the hole at the bottom of the bucket is always bigger than the one at the top of the bucket. And it's those big spenders who are the ones who drive the geeks crazy. (laughs) That's not a bad look. His face is turning the same color. Let me get that out. (laughs) Listen, I don't care whether you're the big spender or the geek. It's fine either way. But if you happen to be the big spender, I'm sorry, if you happen to be the geek, congratulations. Because you get to run point on this. Now, geek, listen carefully. This is when you get to go over here and spend five or ten hours, crunch the numbers, knock yourself out, have a big time with this thing. But geek, once you get this together, you have got to come back over here to your big spending spouse. Now, big spender, listen up. This is the time in your marriage that you hate the most. You don't like these meetings. But you can't play the old game any longer. You can't say, oh honey, you're better at that stuff than I am. You just handle it. No, you can't do that. You have got to participate. You cannot abrogate. But again, geek, remember, the big spender doesn't even want to be in this meeting. Now what geeks usually do, they have been working on this thing and they're proud of their work. They've got like about a three foot high stack of paper here. They're thrilled with this. So they carry it all up like this and they walk in here and they come into usually wherever the spouse is and they they say come on in here let's have that money meeting and then they go into which room which room do they go into always the kitchen yeah drop it on the table turn on that fluorescent light and sit down on separate sides and glare at each other like they're at a union management negotiating meeting that is bad strategy don't do that don't do that listen 
Geek, I know you're proud of all that work you've done, but you need to reduce it. You need to get it down to like two or three really skinny sheets of paper. Roll them up. Make them small. Walk in and say something like, sweetheart, could we have that money talk? And then don't go into the kitchen. Don't do that. Go into some room where you can sit side by side. Go in the living room. Better yet, go into the bedroom. Don't turn on any lights. Light some candles. Turn on some pretty music. Use bizarre language. Sweetheart. Darling. Kissy poo. <laughs> I don't care what you call it. Just as long as you do it right. Listen, I'm telling you, you do this the right way, it can be the beginning of a pretty cozy evening, if you know what I'm talking about. If you do it the wrong way, it's going to be the beginning of the second great ice age. So get this thing right. Number two, let's learn what our true income is. This is when we have to know how much money we've got coming in. The funny thing, and I say funny, it's really not funny, but the thing that happens pretty regularly, when a couple comes to me they'll, you know, with some money issues, I'll ask them, I'll say, so how much do you make? And more often than not, they'll say, well, we don't know. Or they'll say, well, you know that W D-40 form that the boss sent me or the government or the guy at the post office sent me? That said we made $60,000 last year. Ding, 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 ding. Wrong. That is not what you made. That's what they call the gross income. (laughs) The reason they call that the gross income is because that's how you feel when you realize you ain't getting all that money. That's before they take out the federal taxes and the state taxes and the union dues and Medicare and Social Security and all that carrying on. And by the time they're through mucking around with your $60,000, it's starting to look a lot more like about forty-five dollars or $50,000. But we've got to know what the true income is so we know what we have to work with. Number three, let's do our personal financial freedom plan on a monthly basis. Now, Steve, does that mean I have to spend 10 hours a month doing this? No. We ought to get this thing down to the point where it's maybe a 5 or 10 minute process. We glance at it, kiss each other on the cheek, and we go on with life. But listen, let me just tell you the dirty little secret of family budgeting that a lot of people don't tell you. And by the way, does everybody in here know that what I'm teaching is not new stuff? I mean, this is very similar to the kind of thing that Dave Ramsey and Larry Burkett and uh, Clark Howard and Susie Orman and Ron Blue and a lot of people have taught over the years. But let me just tell you something that some people don't tell you. When you start on your family budget, give it a six-month shakeout period. Because here's what's going to happen if you do this. In about two months from now, the two of you will be having more money fights than you're having right now. That's the shakeout period. Live with it. It's okay. Because within about four to six months, you'll be amazed at how placid and nice and smooth the waters get. And if you don't like the new lifestyle, you can always go back to the old-time habit. But give it about six months, and we're going to do it every single month. Number four, let's do it in written form. There is no such animal, folks, as a budget that is not on paper. I don't care whether you're talking about a budget or a new law or the constitution of a nation. Until that sucker is reduced to writing, it's nothing more than a bunch of free-floating ideas out here in open space ready for review and revision with every little whim that comes along. We have got to put this thing on paper. Otherwise, it doesn't count. I get really nervous when I'm talking to a couple, and I'll say, well, so do y'all have a budget? And the guy will look at me and go, yep. I'll say, well, can I see it? No. How come? Because I keep it right here. He doesn't have a budget there. He doesn't have much else there. You do not keep your budget between your ears. You've got to write this thing down or it doesn't count. Number five, let's write our personal financial freedom plan in the order of priority. This is where we say to ourselves, okay, if I only had 
$800 coming in this month, what would be number one? What would be the most important thing? Would that be my giving, my housing, my clothing? My, okay, boom, boom. Put that at the top of the list. Then what comes next? Then what comes next? You see, that way at least we pay the rent before we pay the cable bill. Very important. Number six, let's not be overly optimistic. <laughs> you know, when I do seminars, I know that my audiences are a little bit like a bell curve. There are a bunch of you in the middle that are going to take a lot of this stuff and use it. And I'm very thankful for that. There are a few of you over here that don't even want to be here right now. I know that. I know that. You're sitting there right this minute wondering what's on 60 Minutes. I know that. You made a calculated decision about 3 o'clock this afternoon that it would be less painful to come and listen to me for an hour and a half than it would be to deal with your wife or your husband for the whole week if you don't come. So that's why you're here tonight. I'm still thankful that you're here. But there are some of you over here on this side who are my best friends. I call you the lunatic French. You're the ones that are going to take everything I'm teaching, stuff it under your arm like it's a football, figure out where the goalpost is, and run like your life depended on it. And in about two, three, four years, you're not even going to know yourselves. Things are going to change that much. This is for those of you of that group. Don't be overly optimistic. A lot of times people in that group over here, they start their budget, and they'll look over all their expenditures, and they'll see some item that they've maybe been spending $100 a month for. And they think, nuts, let's really put that thing in there for $40. And they do. But the trouble is they keep spending 100 And after about three months, it's become a budget buster. And they're blaming the budget. And they're getting discouraged. It's not a budget problem. It's a spending problem. Be reasonable with yourselves. Number seven, also, let's be kind to ourselves. Uh, there's usually one parent, this is the geek, who is secretly happy that we finally got this budget thing going. Now, this is the same parent that has a way of sucking the fun out of everything else in life, okay? Same parent that would have made a great Hitler youth camp guard, right? (laughs) The same parent that calls the kids in and says, Come in here, boys. Well, your mom and I, your dad and I, we've decided we're going to start a budget. What does that mean to you boys? Well, that means starting next week, we're going to sell the dog and you boys are going to start eating those kibbles and bits. And it kind of goes downhill. From, don't do that. You do that, you're telegraphing to the next generation that this is a painful thing. Show your kids that life goes on. We're going to have fun even with a budget. We may not get to do some of the same things that we were doing before, like you know, eating out at all those fancy restaurants, You know, the ones with the salt and the pepper and separate shakers. We may not get to do that for a while. We may not get to go on that resort vacation this year. You may have to go to Granny's and let her do the cooking. But we're going to have a good lifestyle. Dad, you may not get to play as much golf. You might have to go home and throw frisbee with the kids a little more often. That's not all bad. We are going to figure out ways to enjoy life with the budget. Number eight, let's not forget the set-aside items. You see, most of us have some things that we do not purchase every month. A lot of us pay for our car insurance, like every six months. A lot of us pay for, notice I'm using the phrase pay for, not go on. A lot of us pay for a vacation once a year. But if we don't have line item set-asides where we're putting money away ahead of time for these things, then when one of these things does come around, we won't be able to do it. Or we'll do something really stupid, like taking our credit card on vacation with us and buying it in advance and paying for it in the rears. That's what causes pain in our lives. And number nine, let's learn to distinguish between what is essential and what is optional. And folks, that's awfully hard to do here in the United States of Disneyland, okay? Because most of us think that what is completely essential is what we've already got, plus about 10%. <laughs> but the essentials are housing, clothing, food. After that, everything else is, is an extra. It's not essential. I was working with a woman a while back. I remember she was divorced. She had two children. She was a school teacher. 
the collectors were calling her right and left. And she called me and wanted some help. So I said, okay, Shirley, get your budget together and we'll look at it. Well, she got her budget together. And I remember I sat down and looked at it. And under the heading of cable TV, she had everything. Not just the poverty package, okay? She had everything. HBO, Showtime, all that stuff. Now listen, we could spend some time standing around here talking tonight about whether or not Christians should even be buying HBO and Showtime. But that's not what we're here for, so I won't do that. But I looked over all this and I said, Shirley, you know, if you would get rid of your cable in less than a year, you would be out of debt. And it made her mad. She sat there and began to lecture me on why she had to keep the cable. It was essential. I didn't argue with her. She kept it. And finally, a couple years later, she got serious, but it took her several years to get out of debt. Folks, we have got to understand the difference between what we want and what we need. Let me just share with you what I call this Diggs family secret weapon. And again, I'm doing this totally tongue-in-cheek. This is not a secret at all. This is the most widely taught money technique out there. How many of you in here are already using an envelope system? Nobody? Oh, we got a few. Few of you want to go to heaven. Okay, good. <laughs> Let me show you how this thing works. By the way, if you watch, you can go to the uh, you can go to the store and spend fifteen dollars and buy one of those cool little kits. Or instead, if you want to, you can do what we do in our family. We spend about fifteen cents and buy these cheap little envelopes. They work just as well. What you do though is you look over here at your personal financial freedom plan and you identify the five or the twenty different items that you know you're going to overspend on. Things maybe like going out and eating at restaurants. I call that recreational eating. Allowances, the money that you give the kids, the gifts that you buy for other folks, the gas that you put in the car. You know you can now get an FHA loan for gas? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the groceries that we buy. Then you look over here at your personal financial freedom plan under restaurants, and you say, how much money do I have? Oh, I've got $50 for restaurants. So at the beginning of the month, or whenever you're paid, you put $50 in your restaurant envelope. And then tonight, after church is over, somebody comes skedaddling up to you and says, hey, why don't we go over here to McDonald's? All you have to do is look in the envelope, and if there's money in here, what do we get to do tonight? Yeah, we're going to hit the golden arches. But if there's nothing in here, what are we going to do tonight? Yeah, we're going to go home and eat cheese and crackers, or crackers and cheese. But we're not going to spend money that we don't have. Very, very important point. Now, we've talked a little bit about the A of acknowledging who owns everything, the B of budgeting. Let's wrap this up this evening by talking a little bit about the C of learning how to control our money so it doesn't control us. What we've been talking about up to this point pretty much has been the need money, the money we need each month just to get by on. I want to shift the focus a little bit now and talk a little bit about the seed money, the money that if we will use it correctly can really change our lives for the better forever. See, one of two things is going to happen. Steve Diggs is either going to learn how to control his money or my money is forevermore going to control me. That old adage really is true that money is a great servant, but it is a terrible, terrible master. And brothers and sisters, I said it this morning, morning, but the only master that I want in this world is Jesus Christ. I don't want to be mastered by my money. Listen, let me give you three ways to achieve financial freedom. And again, let me just tell you before I do this, listen carefully. I'm doing this with apologies to those of you who have gray hair on top because you already know this stuff. You're the ones who come to me and say, Steve, doesn't everybody else know this? No, we don't. The baby boomers and those after us didn't get this. I've noticed that there is a direct relationship between the amount of gray hair on top and the amount of gray matter in between the ears. We younger people didn't get this. So here goes again. I'm going to use short sentences and very few syllables for those of us my age and younger. Number one, we have to learn to spend less. Number two, we have to learn to earn more. 
Number three, we have to learn to invest wisely. Now, there is a fourth thing up there that you could do if you want. I don't recommend number four. That'll take you away from the house five, ten years at a time. So, so I don't recommend number four. But numbers one, two, and three are what we're going to focus on. And I will tell you that tomorrow night, we're going to zero in on number three. So we will not be discussing investing tonight. But we are talking a little bit about one and two. And let me just say this. About 80% of people who are having financial pain think that their problem is number two. They think it's the fact that they're not earning enough. They're convinced that if they're making 35000 a year, all they need is 40, everything will be fine. If they're making 50, they need 60. If they're making 80, they need 100. If they're making a quarter million dollars a year, 300000 would get them by just fine. Folks, it doesn't work that way. Do you all remember back in the early 1990s when Donald Trump first got into financial trouble. Do you remember that? And the banks were trying to put him on a stipend and he was screaming like a stuck pig saying, how dare you? How do you think anybody can live on just $400,000 per month? (laughs) I could. (laughs) But you know, seriously, if you have enough yachts and planes and cars and houses of junk, you could probably blow through 400000 in a month and never see it. You see, the big point is simply this. For about 80 or 90% of us, the biggest part of our problem is what we're doing with what we've already got. Number one, how are we spending our money? It's not our earnings. Now, I'll admit that if you've got a family of four, you're making $27,000 a year, you have a number two problem. You've got to get more education. You've got to get another job. You've got to work extra hours or change and do some things. But for most of us, the biggest part is number one. Um, listen, I'm only going to share one technical formula, but I found that this helps me a lot. If I just simply remember this, that bank withdrawals have got to be preceded by bank deposits. If I remember that, things seem to work pretty well. So the question is, how do we do it? And this is when we're going to get into that, that wolf barrier that you see coming up in your books here on the next page. But before we do that, I want to stop the seminar for just a minute, okay? Here, there, I just turned it off. This is not seminar. This is a... We'll call this a sidebar. I didn't used to do this in seminars. But people were constantly coming up to me who had not read the book. They hadn't read the book. They hadn't taken the boot camp. And they didn't understand this. And they would say, well, Steve, that wolf barrier is all fine and good. But how am I supposed to get that money you talked about? So I realized that I needed to start sharing this. So let me just very quickly share what I call Steve's three-point mantra. Now, what I'm about to do is this. I'm about to share three things that we have to do if we're going to have the money that we need to build that, boot, that, that, um, that wolf barrier. And I'm, I'm not a very good salesman on this. Let me just tell you, what I'm about to share with you is going to probably make for the most painful one to four years of your financial life. I'll just tell you that right now. Number two, what I'm about to recommend is stuff that everybody in this room already knows. I don't have any smoke or mirrors. I don't have any brand new stuff, okay? I'm just telling you, it's not a very good sales pitch, but that's true. However, what that is over there is much better than what most Americans end up doing. About 90% of American adults end up spending their lives, year in and year out, decade in and decade out, always stressed over the money, always fussing with their spouse, always worried, how are we going to pay the bills? How are we going to deal with that, that, that car that broke down? And how in the world are we going to pay for college and forget retirement? And brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, listen to me, the toll that this takes on the human soul, the way it depletes our spiritual vigor is beyond our comprehension. It damages us in ways that we don't even know. And this is bad. That is good. 
Well, what is that? This is the three-point mantra. Now, I'll just tell you very quickly what it is. Number one, we're going to have to learn how to start selling stuff. What does that mean? That means just what it says. We're going to get rid of everything we've got that we don't need. We're going to learn about eBay. We're going to figure out where the consignment shops are. We're going to have garage sales. There are two ways, by the way, to sell stuff. There's a good way and there's a great way. The good way is anytime you sell anything and get some cash for it, that's good. The great way is when you sell a car that you don't absolutely have to keep. That's great. Or you sell a boat that you're not using or a storage shed full of junk that you're not using. You not only get the money from the sale, but you get rid of overhead. You get rid of insurance expenses. You get rid of maintenance. You bring your cost of living down. But we are going to sell things with a, with a vengeance. We're going to get rid of as much stuff as we know how to. Number two, we're going to cut expenses. What does that mean? That means we're going to cut expenses big time. That means when we stop and put $30 worth of gas in the car, we're not going to pop $3 worth of Cokes and candy bars into us. We're not going to be going out and eating those restaurants. We're not going to be spending money that we don't have. We're going to cut expenses. The studies show that the average person that will carpool with three other people can save about $1,500 a year. If you brown bag your lunch to work every day during the year, you can save over $2,000. We're going to change the way we do things, and we're going to cut expenses right Steve, do I have to live like that forever? Probably not forever, but but for about one to four years, yeah, that's the truth. The third thing, and before I even put this third one up, let me just tell you, this is the toughest one of the three, and it's the one that people resist the most, but it's also the one that is by far the most important. We are going to learn how to work. And let me just tell you something. We Americans were told a lie by our government in 1938. In 1938, they told us that 40 hours of of, of work per week was the same as full-time employment. Listen carefully. 40 hours a week isn't going to do it. Especially when you're in debt, you're stressed, you're fussing with your spouse. And when we're in debt, we're stressed, and we're fussing with our spouse, the solution is not laying on the couch, eating chips, and watching Oprah. We've got to get up, get vertical, get out, and go get something done. We have got to bring in some more money. And gentlemen, please listen to me carefully, because I'm talking to the men in here right now primarily. Ladies, if you do not have a husband in your life, I'm talking to you. But for those of you in a traditional family, men, this is the man's job. We need to start acting like men. What does that mean? That means we're going to get out there and get busy. We're going to get second and third and fourth jobs. We're going to get all the overtime we can get. We're going to start a business as long as we don't have to spend money to do it. If you've got a rake in the backyard and you know somebody that's got leaves in their front yard, then congratulations, there's a business. If you've got a car with a back seat in it, you're the proud owner of a debris hauling company. Okay? We're going to figure out ways to make money. I know guys that kiss their wives on the forehead at 10 o'clock at night. They go out two nights a week for about three hours. They clean up a little office building and they're making another five. 500 to $1,000 a month. We are going to get serious about this. And ladies, listen to me on this. If your husband loves you enough to do this, don't undermine him. Don't do that. Don't start with this stuff. Oh, honey, I'm, I, I just don't think you're spending enough time with me and the kids. Don't go there. This is his way of loving you. And wives, husbands, this is the time that we lock arms again. We fall back in love with each other. We begin to realize that each other isn't the enemy. The enemy's the devil. And we are going to fall in love with each other. We are going to begin to make love with each other. We're going to become each other's best friends. And we're going to go through this storm together. It changes marriages for the better when we do things like this. And, and think about it. What are we doing with our time? Every one of us gets 168 hours in the week. What are we doing with it? You know, the average adult needs to spend about 56 hours a week in bed. 
And if you're a parent, you probably ought to spend some time with the kids. Studies show the average parent spends less than 10 minutes a day with the children. But let's pretend you want to be a good parent. You're going to spend two hours a day. That's 14 hours a week, so we're up to 70 hours. Well, what about me and running errands? Cool, throw in another two hours a day. That's four, that brings us up to, what, 84 hours. Well, what about church and Christian activities? Throw in another 14 hours. By now, we're up to about 98 hours. Now, folks, by my count, the difference between 98 and 168 is about 70 hours. And when we're in stress mode and the collectors are calling and we're behind on the debts, working 60, 70, 80 hours a week, there's nothing wrong with that. We are going to work, we're going to sell, we're going to cut. And then we're going to get real serious about this little wolf barrier. Let me just share with you quickly about this wolf barrier. This is just simply my way of illustrating how to keep that wolf on the left-hand side away from the door on the right-hand side. I'm not going to tell you that the way I do it is the best way. You may want to build your wolf barrier in some other way, and that's fine. But the point is this. We all need to have a planned approach here to deal with our money so it doesn't deal with us all the time. What I like to start with, I like to start with some crisis cash. What's crisis cash? That's that paper folding stuff with pictures of dead presidents on it that some of us used to have. We need to keep some cash around all the time. That way when the pizza boy hits the front door, we don't have to use the credit card. One of the kids needs a shot down at the clinic. We have 60 or $80. It's not a big deal. How much crisis cash do we need? That depends on your family. Some families need 40 or $50. Others ought to keep a couple of hundred dollars. But we all need to keep a little bit of this. The next two stages, before I even put these up here, let me tell you, gentlemen, these are the love stages. You want to show your wives that you love them? Listen to me on these next two stages. All of the studies show the same thing. Women tend to be more security conscious than men tend to be. And husbands, if you love your wives, these are the two stages that I call the wife insurance stages. Okay? Number one. We need to get that Murphy fund together. That's the same thing everybody else calls an emergency fund. It's the money that we have around when bad things happen to good people. It's for when the washer and dryer both break down and one of them floods the floor. It's for when the axle breaks in one car the same week the transmission goes out of the other one. It's the money we have for emergencies. How much money do we put in the Murphy fund? Well, you know, we need to get some money in there real fast, a few hundred dollars. Anybody in this room, I'm telling you, I, I could do this tonight before, before bedtime. I could have a job that would make me another three to $500 this week. I can go out there and stack rocks. I'll rake leaves. I'll do anything I have to. But I'm going to very quickly get some money into this. My goal, though, is to eventually get my Murphy fund up to about 5% of my annual income. That means that if I'm making $60,000 a year, I'd like to have $2,500, $3,500 in my Murphy fund. But again, husbands, this is where you show your wives how much you love them. Because this is when you need to be doing regular toe checks on your wives. This means you're looking down at your wife's toes. And I'll tell you guys, if your wife's toes are dangling out here over the cliff, you can bet something's true. She ain't very happy. And when mama ain't happy, what? Ain't nobody happy. (laughs) So this is when we put our arms around mama and we pull her back. This is where we start. We get that Murphy fund moving in a hurry. Number two, the third point, but the second of these two love steps. This is when we look at our life insurance. Now again, I wish I had time to teach on insurance. In the book, I teach a whole chapter on it. In the boot camp, we'll get into it in depth as well. But listen, 
I'm going to have to make some assumptions here because I don't have time to talk about all the different types of insurance. I have a moment. I'm going to talk quickly about life insurance. So I'm going to make an assumption that I know is not true for everybody. I'm going to assume that if you have a job, you've got health insurance. I'm going to assume that if you drive a car, you've got car insurance. I'm going to assume that if you own a home, you've got homeowners. If you don't, you should have renters. I'm going to assume that you've looked at some good disability insurance. I'm going to assume that if you're much over 50 years old, that you're looking seriously at long-term care insurance. All I have time right now to even touch on is life insurance. I call life insurance love insurance. That, to me, is the way to look at it. And again, this does not agree with what the insurance industry frequently tells us. But I really do believe that the main reason for buying life insurance for most people is to protect the people who depend on your income in the event of your death. This is why we buy life insurance. Now, as you know, there are two broad types of life insurance out there. There's the old-fashioned stuff that's been around forever called whole life insurance. Sometimes it's called permanent life insurance. It comes under all kinds of wrappers, variable, universal, all kinds of insurance wrappers. I don't care for this stuff for most people. Why? Because it costs too much. A 40-year-old guy that wants to buy a half a million dollars worth of whole life insurance could easily spend six, eight thousand dollars a year. That's a lot of money. Now the boys and girls who sell it to you say, hey, that's a great deal because you also get a retirement account with it. Well, technically that's true, you do, but people who study these things usually come back and say, hey, the long-term returns on the cash value accounts in whole life policies are nowhere close to what they should be for good investment purposes. Tomorrow night we're going to talk about investing. The real reason whole life policies cost so much, partially, is because the kids that sell to us get paid great commissions. Now, there's whole life. The other type of insurance that we've all heard about is term insurance. I like term insurance. It makes good sense for a lot of people. It's creatively named term insurance because we buy it for a, a term. Five years or 10 or 20 or 30 years. We buy it for a period of time during our lives when we expect that we need insurance. That usually will be when the children are growing up before we've got our savings and our retirement plans together for most of us. If you're not comfortable buying something like that that has an end to it, you can buy term insurance that has a guaranteed renewable rider on it. It costs more, but it's something some people like to buy. The cool thing about term insurance is that it costs a whole lot less than whole life insurance. The same 40 year old that wants to buy a half a million dollars worth of coverage that was going to pay six or eight thousand dollars over here can buy term insurance for a half a million dollars for usually somewhere between four and nine hundred dollars a year. And then the old adage kicks in. You buy a term, you invest the difference. Now, if we're not going to do part B, it's probably better to go over here and get this stuff than not to have anything at all. But tomorrow night, like I said, we're going to talk about how to invest correctly. And if we do it correctly, this is usually better for most people. How much life insurance coverage do we need? Depends on who you ask. What I tell people is this. You need to have at least 8 to 12 times your annual income. How much does that, well, how much is that? That means if you're making $50,000 a year, you'd like to have four to $600,000 worth of coverage. Um, one other quick question. What about mama? What if mama does not work outside the home? Do we need to buy life insurance for mama? Yes or no? Absolutely positively. You can underline that about 12 times. This is when we need to, mom and dad need to sit down together and say, sweetheart, tomorrow morning, if you were killed in a car wreck, 
financially, what would that do to this family? What would it cost to replicate the child care, the, the homemaking, the clerical work, the 9711 things you're doing? Could we do that for 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 or 90? Come up with a number. And then multiply that by 8 to 12 times. That's how much insurance we need for mama. By the way, moms, the good news is this. Your life insurance is usually going to cost less than dad's because you gals live longer than the guys. So that's the good thing. This stuff's gotten so cheap, though, that we all ought to have it. Next thing, this is when we're going to pay off the short-term debt. Now, this is when the devil starts to whisper to people saying, this guy's crazy. You can't do this. I'm telling you, absolutely, you can do it. I did this back in the early 1980s. There are hundreds of thousands of people across America who have done what I'm going to be teaching you in the next few minutes, not just under my teaching, but they've done this successfully, middle-income class Americans. What is short-term debt? For most of us, it's everything except the house loan. It's the cars, it's the credit cards, the school bills, all of that junk that is messing up our lives. I'll tell you what, if you want to, just for the fun of it, close your eyes with me just for a minute and pretend that today is the first day of next month, it's the first day of September, and you wake up, the sky is blue, the birds are chirping, and wow, that $219 doesn't have to go out this month, that $304, that $76, that $182, none of those bills have to go out this month. Do you suppose that if that were the case on September the 1st, that September might be a little bit more fun than August has been? Well, if so, let me show you right now how to do it. What we're going to do is we're going to take all of our debts, all six of the credit cards, the school bills, the car loans, and line them up in front of us. Then what we're going to do is we're going to make minimum payments on every single one of them with one exception. Now, by the way, what most people do is this. If they have an extra $100 left over, they kind of divvy it up over all 10 of those debts. Don't do that. That's bad strategy. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to make minimum payments. Then we're going to apply that three-point mantra. We're going to sell, we're going to cut, we're going to work, and we're going to murder one debt at a time. Dave Ramsey says you go after the one that you owe the least on. If you want to do that, that's great. Susie Orman says, no, you don't do it that way. You go after the one with the highest interest rate. Fine, do that if you want. I don't care. I just say get a stake in one hand, a hammer in the other. You figure out which one has the ugliest green hair growing out of its tongue and kill it. How am I going to do that? We are going to sell, we're going to cut, we're going to work. And listen to me real carefully on this. Don't anybody in here tell me that we can't do this. Moms, dads, I presented this message to way over 100,000 people in live audiences and probably over 2 million in broadcast audiences. I have never yet had a parent answer affirmatively to this question anywhere in the country. If you have a child, you wake up tomorrow morning, the child is sick, you take them down to the hospital, they run all the tests, they get back to you and they say, we hate to tell you this, but your child has a serious condition here. This child needs a surgery. The surgery has got to be performed in the next 12 months and it's going to cost you $30,000. I dare any parent in this room, I dare you to raise your hand and tell me that in 12 months you will not have $30,000. I dare you to do that. You see, it's not a matter of whether or not we can do something. It's a matter of whether we want to badly enough. And when we get lean, mean, mad, and focused at this debt, and we want this thing out of our life so badly 
that eating out and going on vacations doesn't mean much to us anymore. We'll murder that debt. The minute that that thing's gone, we're going to take the money from the first one and go after the second one. When the second one's gone, we'll take the money from the first and the second and go after number three. Dave Ramsey calls that snowballing. Susie Orman calls that rolling down. Clark Howard calls that laddering. I just call it getting a financial life. But we will kill one after the other. And I'm telling you, virtually anybody that does this, while applying that three-point mantra of selling, cutting, and working all at the same time, can get completely out of debt, not counting our home, in one to four years. That feels pretty good. What happens next? Next thing we're going to do, this is when we're going to get the I don't need this job fund together. What's that? That's the equivalent of three to six months of living expenses. I'll tell you what, um, let me pick on somebody in here. Who's it? Give me your first name again, brother. I'm picking on you tonight. Rusty. What do you work at, Rusty? Where, Nissan? Cool. Rusty, you go into Nissan tomorrow morning, and there are a bunch of suits there, and they, they call you in. They say, Rusty, we need to talk to you. You go into a conference room, they close the door, and they say, Rusty, we've been watching you for the last six months. You are absolutely the best there is in the company. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, Rusty, we want to give you an opportunity to run a new multinational corporation that we're starting. We're not going to waste your time by calling you the president. We're going to call you the CEO. Now, Rusty, don't let it bother you and your bride here that the two of you are going to have to move to Baghdad for the first five years. That's okay, isn't it? (laughs) Seriously, at that moment, wouldn't you love to be able to look at the boss and say, hey, thanks, but no thanks? Yeah. Unfortunately, that's not the way it's going to work for most of us. The way it's going to work for most of us, we'll go in one day and the boss will say, Judy, Fred, come in here for a minute. And it always goes the same way. You've been with us now for eight years. You've done a great job. But you know, just fill in the blank about the downsizing, the merger, the two bad quarters. Effective two weeks from today, I've got to give you your release. I've got to let you go. At that moment in time, would you not love to be able to look at the boss and say, great, I need some time off anyways. (laughs) If you'd like to do that, let me show you how to right here, right now. We're going to get a job fund together. What is this job fund? It's the equivalent, again, of of three to six months of living expenses. Well, Steve, how in the world am I going to do that? Three things come into play here. Number one, remember that three months of living expenses is not the same as three months of income. We talked about this earlier. True income, remember, just because you're making $60,000 a year does not mean that you're needing $15,000 every three months. That's the gross amount. The net about amount that you need is probably more like eleven or twelve thousand. It's still a lot of money, but it's a little bit less. Another thing we're going to do, remember that little item right here beneath it, that little thing up there that says short-term debt? Remember, this is the month that we've crawled out of bed, and none of those debts have to go out again. That $312, that $75, that $112, none of those debts have to go out. And if we had no debt, and if we continue to work that three-point mantra, selling, cutting, and working, don't you suppose we could get this job fund together in pretty tight order? And now do you see where we're at? Where we're all at? We're at a stage that most Americans can only dream of. We have no debt. We've got a job fund. Well, what happens next? This is when we get real serious about our tax advantage retirement planning. What does that mean? That means we're going to put money away in tax-protected accounts like 401Ks, 403Bs, 457s, SEP programs, individual retirement accounts. Anything that lets you put money away that gives you a tax benefit. It grows tax-deferred. You 
get it out without paying taxes on it. You put it in before you pay taxes on it. These are all good things and they're going to continue to get better until at least the year 2010. You need to learn what you have available to you. Most of us in this room can put $4,000 this year away in, in an IRA. If you're over 50, you can put 5000 away in it probably. If you've got a 401k where you work, this year you can put fifteen dollars to $18,000 away in that in most cases. That's more than most of us can afford to put away. We need to learn what there is available out there and get real serious about this. Next thing we're going to do, this is when we're going to get real serious about our college savings plan. Sometimes people look at these last two items and they say, Steve-O, don't you have those kind of backwards? Shouldn't I be taking care of my poor little children for college before I worry about me for retirement? Look, you can do anything you want to do on that. I don't care. It's up to you. But I'm telling you that in my household, this is the way we did it. We did some mixing and matching, but this is the way we did it. And I'm just going to tell you something, moms and dads. I do not agree with what we've been told now for about 80 years that says that if you have a child, when that kid turns 18, you owe them a four-year education. Understand, colleges are not the philanthropic organizations that they want to present themselves as. They are in a business, and that business is selling semester hours. They don't care where the money comes from. It can come from parents. It can come from the kids. It can come from debt. They don't care. And we have to understand how the game gets played. And this is why we need to teach our kids. Now, listen, let's just pretend that you've got an 18-year-old right now. You've never been exposed to any of this material. And let's start out by pretending that you're wealthy. You can pay the whole ticket. I would encourage you to think long and hard before you do it. The parents who pay for the, the whole ticket for the kids have the kids that go to school, get in the most trouble, make the worst grades, and appreciate it the least. I would encourage you to get your kid to partner with you. But let's come back to the real world. Let's pretend that you've got an 18-year-old right now and you don't have one dime saved. And this kid wants to go to college. What are we going to do? Listen, there are all kinds of opportunities and things. There are more and more work-study programs coming along all the time. One of the very best out there, and don't anybody laugh at this, is called the United States Military. Good way to do it for a lot of people. There is nothing wrong with letting that kid get their high school sheepskin and lay out for about two years, get a job, and make some serious money. That kid goes to college more mature, more appreciative. There is nothing wrong with letting kids work while they're in college. Um, David mentioned that we had four kids. Actually, we've only got two. We, we, we've got two of our own. We've got two rentals. We just bring them in for the Christmas pictures and get rid of them the rest of the year. It's cheaper that way. That's a joke. We have four kids. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. But the deal we had with our four kids was simply this. We just told them. I said, listen, you kids can go to any college you want to as long as it's a Christian college. And mom and dad will pay your tuition. But anything else you want, you've got to pay for it. If you want to live on campus, you pay for it. If you want some books to go with those classes, you're going to pay for them. And our kids knew it from the time they started. The first three have graduated from Lipscomb with zero debt. Mary's about to start to college, and, and she's got a good war chest, too. All four of our kids have hit college with, with a fair amount of money saved. But it took the first three about six minutes, and Mary's going to learn this here in the next week or two herself, to realize that that money wasn't going to go as far as they'd hoped. They had to work while they were in college. And folks, there's nothing wrong with that. Listen, if your kid calls you from college and says, Mom, Dad, I'm just so busy studying that I don't have time to work. That's the same kid that'll lie to you about other stuff, okay? Kids are not that busy studying. There's not anything wrong with letting kids work while they're in college. I'll never forget Megan. She called me when she was a sophomore at Lipscomb. She's 27 now. She called me when she was a sophomore one day. She said, Dad, guess what? I said, what, baby? She says, I'm going to get to live on campus again next semester. I said, cool. Did you get a job? She said, yes, sir. I said, well, tell me about it. She said, Dad, I've worked out this really neat deal. They're going to give me my room and my board. All I have to do is clean the dorm and wash the toilets. 
And I'm thinking, you know, I know the people that run that school. I can't have my kid washing toilets. And then I thought, well, Steve, wait a minute. Where is this pride of yours coming from? And eventually, I finally did sit down and run the numbers. Megan's little friends that were downstairs answering the phones and doing the filing, getting paid a a check. You you know, colleges don't even have to pay minimum wage. You know that, don't you? They were making less than $5 an hour. Megan was making the equivalent of about $15 an hour. I was really proud of that kid that semester. I hugged her a lot. Didn't shake her hands very often, but I hugged her a lot. Listen, kids can work, kids can get scholarships, they can get grants, and as much as I hate them, kids can get college loans. But mom and dad, you know what they don't have yet? They don't have retirement loans yet. And that's why I say we get the retirement deal done, then we worry about college. Because it's better to let your kid pay for college than to make that kid pay for you in retirement. You do not want to be a boomerang parent. Next thing we're going to do, this is when we're going to continue our retirement planning. At this point, we may have exhausted tax-protected things, but look at some good tax-managed mutual funds. Some people like annuities. You've got to be careful there. This is a good time to look at long-term care insurance. Next thing we're going to do, we're going to murder the mortgage. That thing's been around longer than the kids. We don't owe very much on it. Besides, what are we doing with our money? I mean, we've gotten everything else taken care of. Why don't we get rid of the mortgage before we go into retirement so we don't have to think about it anymore? And then the last thing we get to do, this is when Christians, middle-income class Christians, get to do extraordinary things that we, a lot of us, don't even think are possible. This is when we get to leave significant dollars behind that will bless people for years to come. Sometimes people come up and they say, well, Steve, where's a good place to leave my money? You know, there are all kinds of godly places to leave the money, but I'll just tell you real quickly. If you're looking for a place, think, and nobody's asked me to say this, think about your home church. You know the people. You know who they are and what they're doing. It's a beautiful way to do things. Listen, we're going to wrap this up right now. Let me just tell you real quickly what to expect tomorrow night. At 6.30 tomorrow night, we're going to pick up with the debt session. I'm going to give you a seven-step do-it-yourself credit repair kit. We're going to talk about how to get completely out of debt. We're going to talk about bill consolidation loans, debit cards. I'm going to give you a plan to get completely rid of your car loan if you'd like to. We're going to talk about all of that stuff. And then in the final session, that's, I told you this morning, that's my favorite session. We're going to look to the future. I want to share with you the six secrets of the world's really great negotiators. These are great things that change lives. We're going to talk about how mutual funds work and the difference between God's way of doing things and Satan's way of doing things when it comes to investing. Listen, I want to take one minute and I want to share with you a little bit about some resources that we have back here. Please listen to what I'm about to say. Listen carefully. Especially if you're a visitor. Listen, this seminar is a totally free seminar given by this church to its community. If you're a visitor, we're honored that you're with us. Nobody in this room is expected to spend one penny on anything. I do, though, want to tell you briefly about what's on the resource table because I believe in that material back there, and, and some of you may want to take a look at it. There are essentially, well, there are several things. So let me just tell you real quickly. We have some copies of the No Debt, No Sweat book. This is a 350-page book. This is the whole soup-to-nuts teaching. I covered maybe 20%.